Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects, and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time, so probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, I hope you're well, it's Ian here. Um, I just thought given all the recent controversy around the shooting of Chris Cabba and the charging of the officer known as NX121, that it might be helpful just to give you my thoughts. There's clearly a lot of commentary on all of this stuff and um, most of it from people who don't know what they're talking about. And I just think it would be helpful to add my tuppence halfpenny worth. Uh, just to make it crystal clear, I'm not going to talk about the circumstances of the shooting at all uh, for a number of reasons. The primary reason being that that would be subjudice and I'd be putting myself uh, in a rather precarious position if I was to do that from a legal point of view. I don't know anything about the uh, shooting itself. I wasn't there and all I've got to base my own personal opinions on are what I've uh, seen in the media and what I've read and heard. Um, so I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm more interested in talking about is the uh, reaction to the charging of this officer with murder and what I think that actually means uh, for British policing. So uh, it might be helpful for those who haven't listened to this podcast before, or even if you have listened to it or you're a regular listener, you might want to skip back and listen to episode 57, which I put out back on the 14th of September of last year, which talked about uh, this issue when it happened. I was obviously very careful uh, at that time to try and be as balanced as possible. Uh, there's some really uh, useful statistics which I describe in that episode about the frequency uh, or the extreme rarity of people being shot and killed by police officers in Britain. Um, but yeah, if you want to listen to episode 57, uh, there's quite a lot in there and it would sort of, uh, there's no point me going back over repeating that stuff. So yeah, listen to that. There's also, just for context as well, so you understand the seriousness of this. If you go back to one of my earliest episodes, which was episode five, which I put out on uh, in April 2021. Uh, in, in that episode, I interviewed Tony Long, uh, the ex-police officer and firearms officer who was uh, charged with murdering Azel Rodney uh, back in about 2015. Now, now, that shooting actually took place in 2005 and it took them 10 years to make the decision to charge him. Thankfully, he was acquitted at court. But if you listen to that episode five interview with Tony Long, uh, Tony very articulately describes the stress and pressure uh, that farms officers 
frequently find themselves under when they pull the trigger. So just to recap on recent events, the shooting itself was uh, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, it was shot on uh, the 5th of September 2022. And uh, following an investigation by the Independent Office of Police Conduct, the IOPC, a decision was made by the Crown Prosecution Service to charge the officer who's known as NX121. Uh, he's been granted an anonymity for the purposes of the court case. And uh, they have set a, I think, a provisional trial date of the 9th of September, 2024. Um, the Home Secretary has intervened in all of this and she has ordered a review of armed policing and has stated that she's unhappy uh, with the way that police firearms officers find themselves in a almost no-win situation when they do the job that they've been trained to do and uh, as well as finding themselves in a very precarious position legally uh, they also have to deal with very very significant stress and um, you know a long-winded legal process uh, following any um, any shooting and just to Put again, some stats here, it's worth just dwelling on for a moment around the frequency of police firearms operations and the corresponding rarity of firearms discharges. So uh, I did a bit of digging, I found some stats, unfortunately they're a few years old, but I think it's probably fairly representative of current uh, policing operations involving firearms. Uh, in 2019, there were 20,186 firearms operations in England and Wales, and firearms were discharged only 13 times out of those 20,186. And the previous year, 2018, firearms were discharged only eight times. So that gives you a, a bit of a flavour for how vanishingly unusual it is that police officers uh, pull the trigger. Um, it's also probably worth uh, just giving a brief overview for those who, who don't really uh, understand uh, these things. Uh, who actually carries firearms in British policing uh, and what do they do? Um, so. Uh, again, the statistics, um, recent statistics, uh, showed that only 5.4% of all police officers in England and Wales uh, carry firearms as part of their duties, which uh, I'm sure you'll agree is incredibly small number of people. Um, and given that the UK is uh, unbelievably unusual globally in that you know by that statistic 95% uh, of police officers do their duties day in and day out uh, unarmed 
uh, going into some very, very difficult, dangerous, violent situations without the benefit of firearms. Taking on people with all sorts of weapons and they will use a combination probably of verbal um, skills to uh, sort of diffuse a situation um, and at the most they would probably have access to uh, CS gas uh, and or um, a baton and uh, a smaller number of officers will have access to a taser. Um, but I think you'll agree that it is incredibly unusual to find a, a Western uh, nation with, with all of the challenges uh, of crime disorder uh, in in this day and age with such a small number of officers who are firearms trained. Um, and just on that one, just worth uh, for those who don't really understand um, who actually, so we talked about that statistic of 5.4% of uh, police officers carrying firearms. So who are they? So um, I suppose uh, in no particular order, you've got your uh, armed response vehicle crews, ARV crews, who routinely patrol uh, our streets day and night, uh, responding to uh, calls for uh, service uh, relating to uh, members of the public who are believed to be in possession of either firearms or other uh, serious or dangerous weapons. They will respond to those uh, as a matter of priority. Uh, most of those calls that they will attend will not actually be what they purport to be, but every call that they receive must be treated as if it was someone carrying a firearm. Frequently, it might be an imitation firearm, might be kids messing around with air weapons. Um, it could just be uh, a member of the public who's seen something that they think is someone carrying a firearm, but actually isn't. But uh, in amongst all of that, there will be genuine uh, firearms offences being committed by criminals, uh, or for that matter, it could be a, a drunken farmer uh, waving a shotgun around uh, at a next door neighbour, um, all sorts of different things that they deal with. Um, and then you've got your um, specialist firearms officers, your SFOs, so these will be uh, teams of officers who will deal with, generally speaking, either pre-planned or spontaneous uh, incidents. Uh, so, it, for example, uh, there will be uh, a proactive investigation into an organised crime gang. Uh, arrests are going to be made at an address uh, in the early hours of the morning, and that specialist firearms officer team will be used to effect entry into an address, contain the address, and safely facilitate the arrest of suspects. And then um, the most highly trained firearms officers are the CTSFOs, that's counter-terrorist uh, specialist firearms officers. Now these are officers who have been specially trained to respond immediately to marauding terrorist attacks anywhere in the UK. They are trained 
in many of the offensive tactics that special forces would use and will frequently work alongside special forces if they were uh, required in that type of scenario. Um, and then you've got uh, a range of other different capabilities, a range of other different people, depending what they do. So officers who patrol our airports, um, not all of them are routinely armed, but there is a uh, significant armed presence at airports, as I'm sure you'll be aware every time you go on holiday. Um, and then you've got other officers, uh, for example, the static uh, patrolling and uh, securing physical premises, uh, such as the House of Parliament, diplomatic premises, etc. Um, and then finally, I suppose, uh, the probably lesser known group of people who would sometimes, not always, sometimes carry firearms would be surveillance officers. So surveillance officers dealing with um, the higher end of criminality, so that's uh, uh, organised crime, gangs uh, who are believed to be in possession of firearms, or counter-terrorist surveillance teams who may be deployed against armed terrorists, will carry firearms, but they will carry those in a defensive capacity. Uh, in other words, they're only carrying them um, if they get themselves into a situation where their their own lives or the lives of their colleagues are being put at risk. So they're not they're not sort of they wouldn't be trained in the same offensive uh, tactics that specialist firearms officers or ARV crews would would use. So there we go. That's just sort of one hundred and one on on who actually carries firearms. So. I suppose um, it's important to uh, just talk about the reaction to all of this within the wider police family. So I monitor and follow quite a lot of police social media sites. I'm not going to quote directly from any of them for obvious reasons, but I think it's fair to say that the wider police family in the UK is absolutely fuming about this. Uh, feeling totally let down and demoralised, um, feeling that there's a great um, unfairness in what has happened. I think it's only reasonable to put the flip side of that argument forward in this podcast because the reality is that every single one of us, whether we're members of the public or whether we're police officers, we're all accountable to the law and the courts. And I've got uh, no doubt whatsoever that this decision was made on the back of a very lengthy investigation. And the Crime Prosecution Service will have no doubt considered uh, all of the issues, all of the evidence, etc. Uh, before they authorised that charge. And ultimately, it's going to be down to a court uh, and a jury to decide as to whether that officer was justified in doing what he did. And we shall have to wait and see what uh, the jury make of that. But without a shadow of a doubt, there is a lot of unhappiness across policing about this. And this is not the first time that this has happened. 
every time it seems that a uh, member of the public is shot by police in sort of slightly controversial circumstances, there is something of a outcry by uh, the media, by sort of usual pressure groups who have got something of an agenda, uh, and a corresponding sense of frustration and indignation from police officers that it seems to them that they uh, have been trained, uh, highly trained, to do a very difficult and dangerous job uh, having to make decisions in a split second and without the benefit of uh, the lawyers who pore over all of this stuff for many months and often years afterwards. Uh, ultimately, it's down to the paroled cops on the front line who have to make these decisions. And, and it's important to point out here that it's not just firearms officers who find themselves in these almost impossible positions now. Uh, police drivers are uh, very regularly now being held to account at court uh, when a member of the public who is probably driving extremely dangerously, frequently in an either uh, stolen or uninsured car or trying to get away from the police, crashes and either hurts himself or kills themselves or injures a member of the public. Um, frequently now, police officers are charged with dangerous driving or some other traffic offence for pursuing uh, criminals on the road. And that is something that just didn't really happen uh, back in the days when I was doing that job. Uh, we, we felt pretty confident that if the person that we were uh, pursuing uh, was a, uh, you know, committing offences, uh, driving dangerously, uh, and in terms of the wider context, that they were leading a criminal lifestyle, 100% we would be supported by the job. Uh, whereas that doesn't seem to be the case now. And it seems that everyone is queuing up to try and drop police officers in the ship. And that doesn't seem very fair to me. And it certainly doesn't uh, seem very fair to most police officers. So as you are probably aware, uh, those who are feeling particularly unhappy about recent events are firearms officers themselves. And, um, and I've read reports of uh, many, many, I believe in the hundreds of firearms officers in the last few days uh, refusing to carry their firearms. And I read one statistic, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard it from several sources uh, that there were only two armed response vehicles patrolling London uh, the other night uh, when normally there would be 15. So don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, that is something to be really deeply worried about. Um, I'm also hearing that uh, uh, county firearms officers, in other words, uh, firearms officers from other parts of the country are uh, refusing to uh, step in and uh, work overtime, uh, I suppose out of a sense of solidarity to their Met colleagues. And as you may be aware from following the news, uh, there was talk of 
deploying the army into uh, trying to sort of backfill the roles that firearms officers would normally occupy. Uh, and there is a uh, well-established, uh, long-standing protocol uh, between the police and the Ministry of Defence, which is referred to as military aid to civil powers, or actually I, I believe it's now called uh, military aid to civil authorities. It used to be called MACP, uh, whereas it's obviously called MACA now. So what that means is that when uh, policing requires assistance for anything from um, the military, uh, there is a uh, a set of forms that need to be filled out by a senior officer, uh, sent to the Ministry of Defence, and um, uh, the decision will be made as to whether they will be given uh, military support. Now, majority of the time, uh, that is around civil contingencies such as flooding or some sort of natural disaster or whatever. So uh, soldiers will come and support uh, policing. Um, it was used uh, quite a lot, I think, during the kind of COVID period. And at its most sort of extreme, I suppose, would be uh, in the event of a uh, significant terrorist attack uh, that would require uh, the tactics and the weaponry used by special forces, then uh, that uh, would be invoked for uh, the SAS or the SBS to come and effectively resolve a situation that the police were either unable to resolve themselves or they just didn't have the equipment or the expertise to do that. But those would be incredibly rare. And um, the wider really issue really around uh, the, the military support to police farms officers who are refusing to carry weapons in solidarity to NX121 is that, frankly, they are totally unqualified to do the job that police farms officers do in the same way that police farms officers would be totally unqualified to go into a battlefield in um, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan and do the sort of offensive um, closing in with and killing the enemy that the British soldier is trained to do. Uh, it's just because uh, they both carry firearms is, uh, is completely missing the point that British police officers are trained to do a very, very nuanced and difficult job requiring uh, a very good understanding of the criminal law, as well as many years experience of policing and a good understanding of the reality that uh, the vast majority of incidents a firearms officer will deal with will not be, uh, will not require uh, even the production or pointing of a weapon, never mind the discharge of that weapon. So uh, it is unbelievably uh, simplistic to think that you can just put uh, soldiers into that situation. So, uh, so what do I think in terms of what this is saying at the moment? I think uh, anyone who's listened to my podcast, anyone who's read my book, 
uh, anyone who's actually in the police service at the moment will understand the context, the wider context of all of this. So at the moment, you've got an organization that has been effectively undermined in every way conceivable for the last about 13 years uh, through a combination of austerity, uh, political interference, a significant um, attack on their terms and conditions of employment, uh, very much worse pay, very much worse uh, long, longer term sort of prospects in terms of pensions, a very hostile environment within which to work, uh, where it feels that uh, they are not getting supported by the media, they're not getting supported by politicians, they're not getting supported by many of their own senior officers, and they've got a hostile sort of regulatory uh, and oversight framework involving the IOPC, who, is, who are not trusted by police officers at all. That's just a fact. And um, disciplinary processes that can take many, many years to resolve if they find themselves making a decision that ends up going badly. Um, they've got no right to strike. Uh, they've got no right to withhold their labour. And even encouraging police officers to do so is a criminal offence. Uh, officers are resigning in their droves. And uh, they will, many officers who will, uh, may not be firearms officers, but will be looking at this scenario and just thinking, you know what? This is just now becoming uh, almost impossible to do this job. We've had this uh, thing called the police covenant, which is supposedly a commitment by government to uh, support police officers and acknowledge the uh, difficult, dangerous and often thankless job that they do. Um, that was some uh, brainchild of uh, a previous Home Secretary, I think three or four years ago, it might have been under Priti Patel's tenure. It's seen as a bad joke now by police officers, um, just a uh, warm words that, that are not sort of matched by actions at all. And, um, and I suppose my fear with all of this, almost regardless of the rights and the wrongs of the, of the evidence, because as I said, the, the evidence will be tested in court and, uh, and that's absolutely the right thing to do. But it feels rather like this issue has come on the back of many years of a very difficult and traumatic time for policing and is something of the straw that may break the camel's back. Um, you know, if you can look at it in isolation, I think I think it would be wrong to look at this issue in isolation because it's it's all part of a much wider context of policing and police officers feeling very unloved, very badly led, and uh, effectively unable to push back against a um, hostile uh, media a government that has been incredibly hostile to policing. And um, yeah, I think everyone has their breaking point, don't they really? So let's uh, see how this one plays out. 
And I very, very sincerely wish all of the men and women, uh, firearms officers, as well as those who are just going around their daily business in what feels like almost impossible circumstances. I wish you all the very best and uh, we're all thinking of you. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town.